And Matthew chapter 5 starts this way. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. For my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We pick it up today now in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, now as we are seeking to draw near to you in your Scripture, Radically impact us in this time. In every way, make everything exactly as you intend. In time, in length, in depth. So even in this moment, prepare us. Let our hearts and our minds and our spirits be hungry. Hungry to hear from you. And I pray today that you would open our eyes to a deeper, more powerful, more intimate, more profound understanding of this scripture. Jesus, that you spoke less than 2,000 years ago. And here we are, God, in London, 2015, awaiting your, your touch. As we open your word, open our hearts to it. And God, I pray today that you would captivate us in your word, manifest in such a way that we would find ourselves forever changed. Today, may we hear our calling in you. Today, may we hear your love for us. And today, Lord, transform us. We commit every second of this to you. May your word burst open and come alive and may we have so much Fun in your word now. Save, equip, rebuke, challenge, exhort, comfort. Do all the things you intend your word to do. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. As Jesus now begins this message, at the end of chapter 4, 
are set up to this. The disciples were called four of them from fishing, and that's exactly what they're called to do now. Drop their nets to the bottom, but now to catch men. So they bring the possessed and the powerless and the paralyzed, the diseased, the downtrodden, the distressed to Jesus, and he fixes them, every one of them. They have a simple mindset. If I could bring him to Jesus, he could fix them. I don't have to know the depth of your problem to know the greatness of my God. And then he sits, this Jesus, having healed a multitude of people from every imaginable thing in front of us. He sits. And as he sits, the multitude become two groups of people. There were the multitude in mass, and there were the disciples. And the disciples were not twelve men here. The disciples were anyone who was willing to step forward, to sit at Jesus' feet, to receive now the therapy of his word. And Jesus begins to teach them. As he begins to teach them, the first thing he develops is who we are. Who we are to him, who we are individually, and who we are in the simplest sense is blessed. A word, to be honest, most of us, if we were honest with ourselves, would have found very far as an adjective from us prior to coming to Jesus, prior to receiving his touch. We were everything but blessed. And he speaks about this beautiful transformation from not being full of ourselves to mourning over our sin. And in mourning over our sin, being broken, handing our power over, and in handing our power over, craving like food and water to be right. And in being right with God, becoming meek. And in becoming meek, becoming merciful. I mean, this idea of being, of turning now and having received such great mercy, we then offer mercy to others. And in doing so, we become peacemakers. You're blessed. Nine different times he'll say, you're blessed. Blessed are those. Blessed are the. And if I can't get that, then the next section will actually make less sense. We are now, if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, the congregation of the blessed. Welcome. And he segues from that to show me that chasing friendship with the world is folly. Matter of fact, James would say in James 4.4, 4, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Instead of approval now, we find antagonism. The very same people that we thought would die with us or die for us, now we find are rife with disdain and venom. But he tells us that we're still blessed. And the reason we're blessed is not only is the kingdom of heaven mine, but great is my reward there. So now I have comfort and satisfaction and mercy and adoption. So I find myself pure in heart. God says on the other side, soon I will inherit a new place that he's created just for me. And there I will see my God. But if my heart isn't attached to eternity, this will mean little. 
I mean, let's face it. Let's be honest. If we were to read verses 10, 11, and 12, which one of us actually sees the payoff greater than the payout? I mean, if we're honest. Persecution, reviled, people speaking all matters of evil against you falsely. That stinks. And that somehow can be so much greater than just great is your reward in heaven. And if I don't see the second part greater, why in the world would I endure the first? But if I can't see that, then this next section will mean little. And it is so easy, you know this, to be caught up in a moment where all you see is this moment and you tunnel in on it and you can't see the big picture. And because we can't see the big picture of eternity, this thing seems like the most important thing and we will do so many things that damage eternity for this little thing. And we jump into sin that way because we don't see its lasting effects compared to its momentary pleasure. And the Bible doesn't mince words. It tells us sin is pleasurable for a season, but the payoff is infinitely longer than the actual pleasure. But understand, in these next verses, the term that was umais, could you say umais? Think of it as a, a young lady, and she's sitting here at this moment, and all of a sudden this little furry thing runs by your feet, and she goes, oh, mice! That's the idea. Umais, in its simplest sense, is the irregular plural for you. You know what plural means, right? Plural means more than one. So when he says you are, he is not speaking to individuals at this moment. He is speaking to the collective. And all of a sudden, this thing becomes revolutionary to me. Because understand, in these first 12 verses, the idea here is more of a... These are the states. Grab a hold of these things. But now he says, and and understand, it's kind of like this. In those first 12 verses, it's like, who in the world am I? And God says, let me tell you who you are. You're blessed. That's who you are. You're blessed. But now all of a sudden, in the next few verses, the question is, who in the world are we as the church? And that's his response in these verses. Because it's easy sometimes to look at these verses and say it like, oh, i got to be salt just by myself. I'm going to be salt, Mr. Salty. You know, instead of looking and saying, what if we were to say, listen, church, fellowship of the blessed, this is your calling collectively, me included. It doesn't say you're the salt of the earth and then the pastor should be like super salt or, you know, or whatever. It's like the idea of it is we as a body are this. And that's the idea here. So all of a sudden, here's the weird thing. I'd like you to think, consider this. Imagine being born in a world where everyone thinks, and some of you are actually from cultures like this, that everyone thinks that some form of disablement is actually a punishment from God. I mean, that can be the idea as simple as a flu, but get the idea of losing and not being born without a foot or being born without sight or being born with a speech impediment or being born, you know, and and I'm not trying to pick on anyone. I'm trying to actually trying to open this up to everyone. Imagine spending your entire life in that arena. And some of you actually probably, and I'm not looking out and thinking, I'm not, I don't have anyone in mind here, but some of us, we kind of feel like that. You need to kind of enter into school. And as you enter into school, there are some people, and you don't even know how, but like that moment they step in, they were popular. And I didn't even, I don't even know how that happens, right? They just kind of walk in, they're like, hello. And everyone's like, hey, I want to be your friend. And there are other people, you kind of walk in, you're like, hi. And everyone's like, oh, you know, you're like the opposite. 
And you just kind of know for some people, it's just like, I don't know, they just, everything they do, people just want to be like them and all that. And then there are other people, it's like, you just, you're trying so hard just to get a friend, you know. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be weird, I'm trying to be honest. And you kind of, and it's like, imagine all of that kind of world, but now the idea of it is that everything you feel that's your shortcoming is something everyone else is going to look at and go, God did that because you were bad, or your parents were bad, or whatever. Could you imagine living in that kind of world? But you know what happens with people that feel like outcasts? They become a culture of outcasts, right? And that's, to be honest, that's one of the funniest things about Camden, if we're honest. Because what we have as a Camden is we have groups of individuals. Think that through for a moment. It's like I remember in America, there was, they used to have the groups of people that would pay to clean the highways. I don't know how that works, but we never really did it. But... One of the groups, and this has always stood to me, was the Loners Club of America. How do you have a Loners Club of America? What do you do? You all, like, not sit together and not meet? I mean, how does that work? It's like, we're the hermits, and we have a meeting no times a year. I mean, how does that work? And the reason I say that is, is, is that understand it's so much more than just seeing yourself individually. We have to see ourselves in a community. And let's be honest, in the Western world, we don't see community anymore. And the church uses that word so loosely now that we're kind of banging it on the wall so it doesn't have any meaning anymore. But Jesus is looking, let's start with this. Individually, I want you to see yourself as blessed. I want you to see yourself as, look at you were in the pit, you were in the toilet, and I reached down and I pulled you out, and I gave you a new name, and I adopted you and called you my own, and I took you to myself, and you have been, I mean, you were the poorest orphan in the world, and you have been adopted by the King of Kings, the Almighty, the Infinite. Could you imagine, I mean, can you wrap our head around that individually? How could we not be the most blessed people on the planet. But then Jesus goes, now you need to go and meet your family. This isn't about sort of mavericks for the Messiah. This is about us now as a family, us as a culture, and us as a culture, he says this now. You, collectively, are the salt of the earth. We kind of go, okay, kind of got it. No, 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 no. You, collectively. Church, you, but let me pick out a word that's often missed here, though we read right past it, and that's the word the. The is what we call a definite article. There's a little bit of grammar for you. English grammar, by the way. The definite article means it's a specific thing. Uh is an indefinite, right? Uh, it's like, but Jesus, we read it as you are salt or you are a salt of the earth. Listen, you are the salt of the earth. Do you know what that means? That you are the only salt this earth has. You're it. Without you, church, without you, not, and I'm going to be just, let me just get out into the grill on this. Look at, I'm not talking, there are no Buddhists, no Muslim, no anything but those who are choosing that are disciples of Jesus Christ. Those are the ones he's speaking to. He's not even talking to the multitude. He is talking now to those that when he sat down, they came to him to sit at his feet. And it says, you, disciples of Jesus Christ, you are the only salt this earth has. That's how this starts. So what's the big deal about salt? Well, I've got to spend a week walking around with salt. Metaphorically. I'm not that weird. I think. So let me sort of point out a few things to start with before we even go beyond this. And now you can see why, to be honest, we may only cover salt today. 
Salt is very unique in a lot of ways. We have to address it from the perspective, and I, I kind of wanted to look at it from a medical perspective. wanted to look at it from a scientific perspective beyond that, and look at it from a Middle Eastern perspective. Just kind of give us a little bit more broad spectrum. So let's start with the broad spectrum of the Middle Eastern, the part that they would probably grab the most of from the beginning. Salt was unique to the Middle Eastern culture in the sense that the Middle Easterners saw salt as an enduring and an everlasting thing. And the reason is you put salt on ice, and you know what it is when it's done? Salt. You put salt in fire. You know what it's, when it's done, you know what you find? Salt. And they saw it as an enduring thing. You put it in water, it dissolves, but it's still salt. And to the Middle Easterner, salt was considered then the very thing of endurance or transcendence. It was the token of eternity. Soldiers in Rome were paid with salt. Many of them. I mean, they may have been paid with other things, but salt was one of them. As a matter of fact, the term salarium, from which, by the way, uh, we get the term salary, is from the base word sal, which means salt. It literally means salt payment. Because understand back, even think about this, 150 years ago, this was just as pertinent. 150 years ago in England. You know, when we came here, now understand, we came from a country that's less than 200, well, now a little more than 200 years old. So, I mean, think of the beautiful history that Europe has while, you know, America was still in nappies. So when you come here and you start to notice some things like, wow, there is an awful lot of sausage. Can I just be honest? You kind of show up and you're like, sausage. And then you go to France and they're like, you must see my sausage. You know, it's like they're very proud of their sausages. And then you go to Germany and it's like, oh, my sausage. I mean, there's sausage. And you go, why in the world is that? You know why? Because... 150 years ago, how do you keep meat? You salt it. And if you didn't salt your meat, what you had at the end of it all was bug food. And sausage was a very easy way, or I shouldn't say easy, but it was a very convenient way to salt your meat. So understand, 150 years ago, salted meat was the only meat you ate for the most part. And often, if you, unless you were going to eat it the day you killed it, like a tiger, then chances are it was going to become sausage. You ate as much meat as you can, and what you did with it is you just took it all, threw it in a grinder, and then stuck it in a sausage casing, you know, an intestine, and then, boom, you had sausage. Now, now understand, the reason I say that is, is that salt was fundamental in regards to life as a whole. It was so important, and we had to use it for that purpose. But understand, from the perspective of an Israeli or from the perspective of a Jewish person, salt always spoke about the enduring everlasting. And it was so important. As a matter of fact, the first time we actually kind of see it, to be honest, is when we actually see Lot's wife, who was supposed to be a testimony from that point on of what would happen if we just simply tried to live the old world that we've come from. But then it's interesting, from there, God starts to speak about the... Uh, sacrifices, and in all the sacrifices he speaks about, they require salt. And then God does this crazy thing where he says, I want to make a covenant of salt. A covenant of salt? But it would make sense to them, because we saw salt as the one thing that reminded us of eternity. That was the point. I think that's kind of an exciting thing. We'll, We'll go back to that, but keep that in your mind as we start to develop the things they might not have known. Now, perhaps you're aware of the fact, but to be honest, 
when, when scientists start to look for, you know, they're kind of going around planets and trying to figure out which plants could possibly inhabit life. The first thing they look for, of course, is, can anyone tell me? Water. But, you know, there are two other things that are required for water actually to function in the way you need it to. One is salt and the other is light. Interesting, by the way. So, so hear me on this for a second. In your body. Well, let me say it this way. Does anyone know what percentage of salt is actually in the sea? 3%. Did you know that? 3%. The Dead Sea, of course, where there's so much in it you can float, has 12%. That's it. That's still a lot, let's be honest. The human body, when you cry, when you sweat, your blood are all roughly the same amount, and that's 1%. 1% salt. And I can't tell you how important that is. In the Middle Eastern world, when we found salt, we mined it. The way we mined it was we didn't do all the things we do today with salt and make it fancy and white. What we did is basically they cut a block out of the earth and they put this slab on your table. Just like that. Made that sound exactly like that. I'm sure of it. And that sound. And understand that was salt and dirt. That was it. The whole thing on your table. And you kind of found the, cut, the parts that were like white and, you know, clear. And you kind of pulled those and you chiseled those off of it. But understand that the average salt had at least 84 different minerals. Today, by the way, NaCl, as we said, sodium chloride that we see as table salt, is pretty much rather pure salt, pure NaCl. But understand, when we said salt 2,000 years ago, what we said was this chunk of thing that had dirt and salt in it. But when we saw salt, the closest examples, by the way, today are Celtic salt or Himalayan. Thank you very much. Himalayan pink salt. Because it still has those minerals in it. As a matter of fact, the two highest ones are magnesium and potassium. And so when Jesus is speaking about salt, that's what Jesus is speaking about, is what what we might call whole salt, if that makes sense. Not this defined thing that we'd say today, where we've kind of actually taken out the other parts. So please hear me in this. Now let's start going a little bit into your body. And I'm staying where I'm at. I'm just talking about it from a perspective of, of teaching. Hear me. When salt dissolves in water, it, cre- it dissolves into ions. And these ions are what conduct electricity in your body. Please understand. Salt balances. And again, that whole salt. We're talking about magnesium, potassium, and NaCl. That balances everything in your body. It's the balance. So hear me on that. It balances your body, your water content. If you're like collecting water, chances are you're missing something in that, in that concoction. More than likely, magnesium or potassium. Now, hear me on that. Your whole body functions from electrical impulses. Every muscle in your body functions by electrical impulses. And those electrical impulses are carried from your brain through your nervous system into your nerves, uh, into your muscles. Every one of those require salt or they would never happen. Every... Um, I'm going to lose the word now. See, Uh, when like you're heart beating and you're breathing, all of those things. Sorry? Not vital organs, but that term that's used. Involuntary. Every involuntary response you have in your body. Involuntary function. Like your heart beating. In other words, you don't have to think about it. Your heart's beating whether you think about it or not. Every one of those is controlled by salt. Because it's the electrical impulses that create muscle memory. And those muscle memories keep your heart in that beat. Those muscle memories keep your muscles extending and retracting. And if, those, if that isn't properly balanced, you know what happens? Well, first of all, you have hormone imbalances that come from it. Second, you have terrible problems with your autoimmune system. And to be honest, here's a challenge, and this is just a side note, but if we were to take the salt the way that Jesus had salt, 
I wonder if as many of us would have all of these weird allergy things that we deal with today. Because a lot of, remember, those are the balances that we deal with. And what happens is ladies, with that whole cycle thing you guys go through that I won't develop much on, that's balanced by proper salt. Have a nice day. The only thing that scientists understand in regards to your memory from a physical perspective comes from those ions that are carried to your brain. So if you were to remove salt from your body, first of all, no body function would work properly because every one of them requires muscles. Secondly, you wouldn't have any memory. Some of you are already starting to go, oh my goodness, that's my problem. Uh, You know, every cycle, every hormone, everything would be completely out of whack because all of that is in essence being balanced by this thing that Jesus says you get to be now in regards to this earth. Is that kind of a wild thought? Now, the other aspect of it. Today, as salt is mined still, do you know what percentage of it is used for food? 6%. Did you know that? Only 6% of the salt that is mined is actually used for food. Uh, there are other things. De-icing roads is actually 8%, for what it's worth. Uh, 12% for water treatment. 68% of it is used in manufacturing. Everything from plastics to artificial rubbers like PVC and that type of thing as well uh, to aluminum or aluminium. It all depends on what part of the country you're from. All of that comes from this. Salt was so fundamental that there were taxes on it that actually sponsored just about everything. In France, by the way, for what it's worth, it was called La Gabelle. And, and, and it was so important that it actually sponsored a majority of the huge buildings that you've seen built that are still actually seen today. Uh, It was repealed during the revolution. That was one of the primary points of the revolution. And then the French Revolution. And then it was reinstated by Napoleon. Matter of fact, as soon as he became emperor. Thank you. And you know why? Because he needed money to sponsor his foreign wars. And they were done there. Cardinal Richelieu, during his time, would say that the salt tax, like a bell, was so important that it actually was as important as silver mining was in the Americas to the Spaniard. In Spain, their salt pan, uh, their taxes upon which, and their income from which sponsored Columbus's trips, for what that's worth. The Erie Canal in New York was built entirely on salt income, salt taxes. i just kind of give you an idea of kind of how that all plays out, for what it's worth. Um, with that in mind... I want to get into our text here in a moment, but I want you to kind of consider the fact that from a perspective of manufacturing, salt would shut everything down if it didn't cease to exist, or it didn't exist. From a perspective of agriculture, salt is fundamental for the breakdown of, uh, and the degradation of uh, materials. In other words, it's one of the things that you put in dumps, and it's another thing that you put on dunghills in third world countries. It disinfects, and it actually breaks everything down much quicker. Have you ever heard anyone say that if you have a compost pile, one of the things you're to do to make it quicker is to put salt in there? That's kind of where that comes from. Now, we know a lot more, obviously, today about it, but I want you to realize what Jesus is saying. So here we are. What would we use salt for back then? We would use it in medicine. Hyssop and salt were the most common uses, uh, were the most common things as an antibiotic. You'd wrap babies in it when they were born, by the way. I don't know if you're aware of this. Your embryonic sac contains salt. It actually helps balance the liquids in you, you know, as you're growing in, in, as a, in fetal, uh, as a baby. 
And so somewhere in all of that, you look and you go, the moment a baby's born, the first thing you do is you wrap it in olive oil and salt, and then you wrap it tight in linen. We read it as Jesus swaddled, for instance. That's the whole idea of that. Every cut and bruise was normally hyssop and salt. We used it to preserve all of our foods, and we used it in every covenant we made that we thought had some form of eternal bearing. So please hear me in this. All of a sudden, Len wants to go and get some, some salt. 2,000 years ago, he gets this big chunk of thing, and it sits on his table. <laughs> As it sits on his table, part of it's just dirt. That's kind of what you get for it. If he's got a good salesman, chances are he didn't. You know, you ever do that where you go and you buy something? Sometimes, like, someone's selling you meat, but 90% of it's a bone, that kind of thing. And you're like, you know, uh, that's, go to a different butcher, you know. Well, there's kind of idea with this. And so you kind of do, and he knows, sooner or later he's going to pull off the parts that he's confident and he's going to use them for his children. He's going to use them for medicine. He's going to use them for all of his meats. He's also going to use them, of course, uh, in his covenants and so forth. And sooner or later, what's going to be left is a big chunk of dirt. And when that big chunk of dirt is there, when he's done, he's kind of looking and go, this doesn't serve any of those purposes anymore. To be honest, this is just like the dirt outside. It's no different now than the dirt right outside my door. So what does he do with it? He takes that chunk, he throws it out the door, and people step on it like the rest of the dirt that's outside. It's a very common image 2,000 years ago. So Jesus turns now to his disciples and he says, listen, you collectively, this is what you are. You're salt. You are not just salt. You are the salt. Church, you are the only salt this world has. You are the only connection to eternity this world has. Do you really think that the Muslims are preaching first and foremost about paradise? Ask your average Muslim, and I'm, trying, I'm not trying to be mean. Ask them how much they've been taught about what paradise is, if they're willing to tell you. Ask the Buddhist. Is this about paradise? Is this about becoming a better person? To your long boat, your short boat, where does it go? What's it going to take you to? Ask the Hindu. Here's the sad part. Jesus says, if you aren't going to be salt, what's left? One of the biggest problems we deal with with people in, our, in the rehab house where we often minister is with people who have been who've been alcoholics for quite a long time. And I don't know if you know this, but there comes a certain point in your body system where the alcohol starts to replace your blood salt level. And all of a sudden, that which is supposed to balance everything from your thinking to your natural, you know, your involuntary reactions, uh, to your immune system, to your endocrine, to everything, gets tweaked now and alcohol is running it. Could you imagine? So when a person starts to try to come clean off of that, their whole body starts to short circuit because their entire body was being run now by alcohol. And they get this thing that some of you are familiar with called delirium tremors. What delirium tremors are in the simplest sense is your body trying to figure out what's supposed to run the ship now that alcohol is starting to leave. Can you imagine? And it kills people. I mean, you shake and you see things and you can't control your body. You go into convulsions. It's a really scary thing to watch in other people. And it is definitely a very dangerous thing. And understand what Jesus is saying. What do you think is going to happen if you're not going to be salt corporately? What do you think is going to happen if the church isn't going to be salt? You know what's going to happen? It will find something that destroys the body instead. Here's the interesting thing. And believe it or not, we're rounding the corner here, which, of course, you know, means nothing. So anyways, hear me on this. 
the term, but if the salt loses its flavor. Now, normally we just kind of go, okay, so how does salt become unsalty? Now, we can look at it from the perspective, again, of this chunk, and what happens is the salt leaves it, right? What's interesting is the term that is used here in the Greek, and I won't develop a lot of Greek, but this is a really important one. So, aindi to alas, are the words prior up to it, and then you have the word moranto. Now, morante, in this case, it comes from the brute word, you ready for this? Moranas. Does anyone want to guess what word we get from moranas? Moron. That's the word we get from it. Do you know what moron means? Or moranas means? It means a fool. A thick-headed, unheeding individual. Now understand, there's a big difference between somebody just stupid and somebody who's a fool. Here is the difference. You ready? Headless, heedless. Do you hear the difference? An unintelligent individual could be called stupid. There's somebody that may not have the intellectual capacity. On the other side of it, and it's a very unkind word, we can all agree. On the other side of it, a heedless individual could be brilliant and still ridiculously dumb. The difference is here is defined by choices. And it tells us twice in the book of Proverbs, and hear me on this, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 3, and Proverbs 27, verse 12, a prudent man foresees, not just sees, but foresees evil and hides himself. But the simple pass on and are punished. A prudent person, a wise individual, will look and not just kind of go and say, well, let's just kind of take a little bit more step of it. They will actually seek to foresee the outcome. Now, we're not talking about a pessimist. That's a different story. Well, we don't do anything because we're afraid it'll have something bad. We're talking about stuff that we know is wrong. For instance, sin. And we kind of look at it and we go, whoa, 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 whoa. Before I kind of get romanced into the moment of how I think this moment's going to be so awesome, let's look beyond the moment. And beyond the moment, there is destruction. And a prudent person says, whoa, none of that for me, please. Some people, we know that the, the, the easiest, if you've ever had to deal with a problem with drugs, you know the easiest time to say no to drugs was before you ever took them. Because at that point, you knew nothing about what it would do to you, and all you knew was don't do it. It's hard to develop a taste for something you haven't tasted. It's once it starts now, it's planted. Hear me on this. In Proverbs, as Solomon is speaking to his children, and of all people, Solomon, who was, by the way, one of those people we might say was heedless, not headless. Because God would say at that point he was the wisest man that had ever lived. And yet, though having all of this wisdom, still would not heed it. And when he talks to his sons, and you can almost hear the voice of regret like David when he spoke to Solomon. You hear him say in chapter 5, he says, you don't want to be at that point where you say, oh, how I hated instruction. Man, if I had just listened instead of gotten out of my own thing, man, I was so convinced I was immune. I was so convinced I could charm and cute and smile and think and plot and devise and connive or whatever it is, my way out of this thing. But in the end of it all, I just couldn't. Listen and heed. And Solomon says to his son, don't be that person. And then when you watch Rehoboam, he's that person. Solomon learned just like his dad how not to heed. And he had so much information, enough to condemn him. 
Please hear me in this. Salt, you are the only salt this world has. But if salt becomes heedless, I think I'm getting an idea of what it takes to become salt. Interesting. It isn't about knowing all the information. It's about what we're going to do with it. That's going to be the end of this message, not today, but the end of the message we read in Matthew 5-7. through 7. Jesus is, you know, the difference is not, now that you've heard the message, the issue will not be whether you've heard it. The issue is whether you build on it. Because if you don't do anything, you're like the guy who built his house still, but he built it on the sand. And the difference between that and the one built on the rock was not who heard, but who heeded. There's the difference. And he goes, so, so we're going to put this all together here, but listen, you're the only salt this world has. You are the only connection to eternity this world has. You are the only preservative this world has. Do not buy for a second those that are trying to repair holes in the ozone are saving the world. The one thing that's actually keeping this world from falling completely apart are, is it's you, beloved. You're the only thing. Now, that won't make sense to the rest of the world. I don't expect to say, you know, you know why the world's falling apart? Sin. And they're going to look and go, you know why the world's falling apart? Because you. And you already, they're already saying it. But God makes really clear the reason why everything falls apart, and we saw it clear from the moment that sin entered into the world, that what made the difference was sin. That was always the difference. It's actually rather simple. And here we are. We are the preservative. We are the healing agent. We are the balancing agent. That's all that's what salt does. And you get to be that collectively, beloved. That's one of the reasons why we can't just be individuals. We have to be a unit. We have to be a family. Because as becoming a family, what you find is God starts doing stuff. And let's face it, the reason why there have been so many issues often, and by the way, the, the entire falling apart of the world society will never be because sin or sin. It's because the church isn't willing to be salt. That's why. So when you've got a girl that's arrested because she will refuse to do something against her own conviction in Kentucky because she's an elected official. But they start to look and go, do you realize how many churches disagree with you, though she stands on a biblical premise? What do you do with that? And you go on, you tell people, you know, listen, you need to hear about Jesus. And they're like, why? I'm a good person. That guy said he was a Christian and he's never told me about Jesus. And you realize what happens if we are not all on the same page. He goes, look, you are the only salt this world has, but if all that is left, if you're willing to become a moron, and that's the term Jesus uses, if you really want to be a moron, how do you salt salt when there's no salt left? When the only thing that's supposed to be salt isn't salt anymore, how do you make that salty? He says, you don't. That's the problem. And I remind you, he's speaking collectively, not just of the individual, but of the body. Do you know what happens when salt stops being salt? It's just a chunk of dirt like the rest. Because if salt becomes the moron as a church, can you imagine? Hi, we're the moron church. What does that mean in the sight of Jesus? Let me tell you what the moron church looks like to the sight of Jesus. Anything that is not attached to eternity. Do you realize we could be the most awesome church in the sight of the world and be a moron church in the sight of God? Hey, we go out into third world countries and we plant stuff. We dig wells and we feed people. And again, I'm not against those things. Those are not the end. Those are the tools. 
And we dance and we sing and we perform and we, we reach out to people and we help the elderly and we do stuff with babies and we work with the, with the orphans and all of this. But if we do not do it in Jesus' name, he says it's still moronic. Because in the end of it all, what you have are adopted children going to hell. And what you have in the end of it all are people that are fed and clothed and so forth. But they're still going to hell. And Jesus says, you've got to see it from an eternal perspective. That's what makes us salty. He goes, everything we do, and this is the way it is said, by the way, Paul said to the Colossians, listen, let your speech always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you would know how to answer everyone. Let your speech always be. Do you know what grace means? It's a gift. It is a gift you can't earn. Could you imagine if people spoke with you because they expected what you'd say to them was a gift? Not gossip, not cutting, but a gift. Season with salt. That's how we answer everyone. So imagine, could you imagine, there was a time where people said, oh man, all you ever talk about is Jesus. And we thought that was a bad thing. Man, I would love for somebody to say that today. But for that to happen, I kind of need it always to be about Jesus. And if they are saying that to you, can I just say, keep it up. Let me encourage you. They're like, oh, man, you, all you want to talk about is heaven. Yeah, it's my permanent address. I happen to be a travel agent for it and an ambassador. Could you imagine we send ambassadors all over the world? Could you imagine we send the ambassador of England, let's say, to Nepal? And he goes over there, and as he sits there, and they're like, well, tell us about England. He's like, I don't want to talk about England, man. I just, you know, I'm here in Nepal now. Let's, let's, let's have some Nepalese food, man. Let's, you got some chai? I mean, and, 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 and it's like, but, but you're here representing England, right? Yeah, yeah, but I don't want to really talk the English. I don't want to, let's learn Nepalese. And it's like, and, and I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with engaging the culture. The point is, is that if we are ambassadors, people expect us to represent, oh, I don't know where we came from. And whether that ambassador would know it or not, all of the Nepalese around him know he's not Nepalese. He's a, he's a head taller than them. He's got, you know, blonde or ginger hair. He's fair skinned. There's nothing about him that looks Nepalese. But he could convince himself that he's become Nepalese. But what he doesn't realize is the entire Nepalese world around him is believing that what they see is England. Whether he knows it or not, he's representing. Now let me ask you, as a Christian, what would happen if they saw us? What would they think heaven was like? What would they think our king was like? If they watched us, the way we interplayed with each other, would they see something where there is a standard of holiness? Would they see something where there is a desire to shed everything and just humbly come before our king? Is that what they would see? Or would they see selfish ambition? I mean, think about that for a moment. As we close this up and he says, listen, you are the only salt this world has, beloved. You're it. The cool part is God made you salt. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, the moment you have, you became salt. The moment you sat at his feet and said, yes, Jesus, I want to do more than just not go to hell. I want to follow you. He says, well, welcome to the salt club. He says, listen, you're the only salt this world has. But if the salt wants to be a moron, if it wants to detach from being salty, it wants to cease to be eternal in its purpose, in its perspective, in its priority. He 
is it is good for literally not one thing. It has no good service. Except, well, it's not even good, according to Luke, to even be thrown in a pile of poop. It doesn't even serve a purpose there. And all that's left at that point is to be thrown out. Ekbalo. Balo is an easy word in the Greek. Balo, like to throw a ball. Balo means to throw. Ek means out of. This is trampled underfoot by men. And this is how we start to close this. Please hear me in this. Salt. Or trampled. Stamped. This word for trampled underfoot, katapatel, is used in Matthew 7 when he says, don't give what is holy to dogs nor cast your pearls. And let me, let me do this. Okay, listen. As we get ready to wrap this up, I'm going to read you four verses and I want you to put your minds on here. Uh, hopefully they've, still, they've been on this whole time. And I want you to, to try to discover what all four of these have in common in regards to the word. Fair enough, if you're kind of a pattern finder, theme finder. Matthew 7, 6. Do not give what is holy to, God, to dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Luke 8, 5. A sower went to sow a seed, but as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Luke 12, 1. In the meantime, an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together, so they trampled one another. It was in this light Jesus then began to say to his disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hebrews 10, verse 29. You think it was bad to transgress the law of Moses? How much worse punishment would you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing or a profane thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? What do they all have in common? Well, they're all considered insignificant, unimportant, irrelevant, and worthless. You cast your pearls before a swine, they'll stomp on them and say there's no value in them anyways. They're irrelevant, they're worthless, they're unimportant, they're insignificant. When a sower went to sow some seed, when that seed fell on the wayside, it fell under feet because the, the people didn't recognize it as significant or important. They saw it as irrelevant and worthless. The people, as they were getting to Jesus, you know how they saw each other? Insignificant and unimportant, irrelevant and worthless. The issue was getting to Jesus. In Hebrews, the worst of them to me. That's how we could treat Jesus. That's how we could trample the Son of God underfoot, consider him insignificant, unimportant, irrelevant, and worthless. Counting the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified, a profane thing, an insignificant, unimportant, irrelevant, worthless thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. Listen, beloved. You're the only salt this earth has. Me too, by the way. We, we, are the only salt this earth has. And because we're the only salt this earth has, if we're willing to be heedless and not listen to the Lord and not act upon His Word, 
Do you know what will happen? Not to you individually first, but the church. Do you know what would happen to the church? The church becomes good for nothing in its society, but rather it gets cast out and considered insignificant, unimportant, irrelevant, and worthless. Is that not the world we live in? Is that not how the church is viewed today? The funny thing is the world's trying to figure out how to become relevant to the world. And though the church is trying to find itself to be relevant to the world, the problem is it's trying to find itself relevant to the world by the worldly standards instead of actually finding itself relevant by God's mission. And God's mission is to be solved. Isn't it interesting if you're familiar with the story of Elisha, and it's in Second Kings chapter 2, in Elisha's story they were in a particular place where they found water that was barren. It was, it was killing people. It was making women barren however it was, but it's barren. It was fruitless. The water was a dangerous thing. And it was Elisha, Elishama, the second of the two, that actually said, well then, Kiri, bring me a bowl and put some water in it. And then he put, or then he put salt in the, in, the, in the bowl. And then he threw the salt onto the water and it healed the water. And understand, here in this room right now, God wants to do that with us. Have we been so caught up in the moment that we cannot see the eternity that God has called us to? So things have become so important that eternity has taken a back hob? Aren't you thankful Jesus never did that? Could you imagine what would happen for just one moment if Jesus just slipped into the temporary? What that would have done? We would all go into hell without a choice. What would have happened? And he didn't have a problem getting tight with his opponents, but it was for an eternal purpose. And he didn't have a problem sitting and healing the most unhealable under any other purpose for an eternal purpose. And he didn't have a problem dying on a cross in the perspective for an eternal purpose. And then I look at Paul, the very one that people use these verses for the complete opposite. And he says, to those that were under the law, I became like one. And those that were free from the law, I actually became like one of those that I might win some. Do you realize what he's saying? He's, because for every bit of it was for eternal purpose. He's like, you know what? When I was in Chelsea, I wore blue and white. That's, is that those colors? Is that how that works? You know, so that I could win Chelsea fans. But when I came up here, it was Arsenal or whatever you want to be. You get the idea before I get myself in any trouble with that. It's the idea of it. It's like, look at it. It wasn't Paul who said, hey, I got wasted with the stoner and I went and, you know, and got naked with the exotic dancer. What he said was, look at in the end of it all, it's like if people had a hands, a big, big standard of convictions, I wasn't going to transgress those because they wouldn't have listened to me if I did. Because I was willing to submit to whatever I had to submit to to reach the people that I needed to reach. That's the way that worked. For this purpose, because I was connected to eternity and he was determined to be the salt God called him to be. As we go to prayer, church, I'd like to challenge you now. Are you willing to be salt as a family here? For have God develop us and that everything we think will come from the perspective of eternity. Hey, when we're really young, the moment's eternity. Let's be honest, right? And then, as we get older, it's like years become moments. And it isn't just because our memory fails us. It's because we realize now we've had a lot more of it and we, can, we get the perspective that that thing that seemed like would never end, that actually was ten minutes long, actually does end and we see things end. And we see enough things end to realize there's got to be something more than that. And sooner or later, we start to realize nobody young asks you what you're going to do with your life. They're asking you at best, what are you going to do tomorrow? That's as far ahead as they may be able to think. 
It's the older people that ask because they realize that things last more than tomorrow. Let me ask you, what are you going to do for your eternity? Go back, remember, before Jesus started with salt, he said that if you're really going to represent, you're going to be persecuted, reviled. People are going to say all manners of evil. They're even going to exclude you and they're going to cast out your name as evil. He goes, you know why you should rejoice? Because from an eternal perspective, this is good. From a worldly perspective, this isn't so fun. But eternally, this is going to be great. So here as we pray, have you even accepted this gift of Jesus? He died on a cross for us so that all of our sins could be paid. That was an eternal issue, not just a temporary one. I mean, the problem with sin is eternally it gets paid for, but we still have to deal with the consequences here. That's the part of this earth we deal with. But everything on earth is going to be temporary. And when he died on that cross, it was for every one of your sins. You were on his mind just as much as me. And just like Scripture promises, he rose again on the third day. He offered us a new life that wasn't just a new life here, though it begins here, but a new life for eternity with him. Have you accepted that gift? If you haven't, I'd like to give you that option. If you have, let me suggest to you, beg you if I need to, that as Jesus starts to walk, let's walk with him. Let's be his disciples and let's be the salt he called us to be. Will you pray with me, please? God, I thank you so much for this text. I thank you for what you're doing in our lives here. And I know, Lord, that there are things that seem so important for the moment. I can think of how many moments that I was so caught up in a sporting event for the moment, as if for that moment it seemed like the most important thing, that a goal was made, that the points were gathered, or someone was stopped, or whatever, only to realize even the next morning I would wake up and realize it had no real bearing on the rest of my life even here on earth. But at that moment, it seemed like I was all in it. And I know there's going to be a day, Lord, when we're going to wake up from this dream. We will check out of this hotel room into our permanent dwelling. And when we do, the only issue at that point we'll be considering will be what we really did while we were here. Because we can't go back and do it. You tell us it's appointed unto man once to die and then to judgment. So, Lord, let us make it right. So here, Lord, in this room right now, I pray that you would speak to us. And here in this room, as we prepare for communion, I just ask, Lord, right now, that you would profoundly reach into our heart. You would profoundly reach into us in such a way so that we could say today, Lord, I'm completely yours, and I want to be that ambassador you call me to be. I want to be that minister you call me to be, that representative of eternity, that representative of the kingdom of heaven that I've submitted myself to as king. Make us the salt you call us to be. Let us not become the moron church. We do not want to be good for nothing. So make us salty, really, really salty for the thirst that it would develop in people so that they would crave your living water. For the way, Lord, that it overcomes the flesh. For the way that it makes a heart beat. 
Make us salt, the salt you intend us to be. And Lord, whatever's in us, if there's anything that in our life is completely detached from eternity, that has no eternal bearing, lay it before our hearts now, Lord, and may we willingly lay it down at your altar. As we prepare for communion, Lord, I pray so. And here now in this room, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, and you know you need to, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end, all I ask you to do is give a confident amen. And what you're saying is, I agree, let that be my prayer now. So be it in my life. It's my prayer. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. And I stand before you eternally guilty in that sin. But I know that you love me so much that you sent Jesus to die on the cross on my behalf. And because he did, my debt's been paid. And just like Scripture promised, he died, was buried, and rose again. And as he rose again, I know today I could be yours. I could be reconciled and washed clean eternally. So I say yes, confessing Jesus as my Savior at the cross and my Lord at his resurrection. I'm yours now forever. Let me be yours in Jesus' name. And if that is your prayer, then I ask you to give a confident Amen.